There's an apocryphal story about a law student once upon a time who was a very good student and he was given an assignment and he wrote a great paper. He wrote a paper disproving justice and he handed in his paper to his professor and when the paper was returned, the professor read through it and he handed it back with a failing grade. And the student rushed to the professor and he protested. And he said, professor, I worked long. I worked really hard on that paper. I, I, I studied so many things. I, and the professor interrupts him and he says, yes, 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 that was, that was very clear. This, this is a fantastic paper. It's one of the best papers I've ever read. It's possibly the best paper that I've ever read. In fact, it was so good, you convinced me. There is no justice, so don't complain. <laughs> well, we are studying the book of Second Peter, and we laugh at that illustration. We laugh because it's funny, but we also, in a sense, we just, that would be really awful, wouldn't it? That would be really awful if, if there were no justice. Friends, remember that Peter wrote this letter to help Christians live a godly life and avoid serious error by remembering God's promises, specifically that Jesus is coming back to judge the earth and bring in justice. Last week, we saw how all false teaching is a kind of worldly theology that dresses up as Christian it exploits us by twisting essential gospel truths to appeal to our sinful desires and then to lead us in a way that rejects Christ, a life that will ultimately lead to our destruction. The next thing that Peter wants to do, and what we're looking at today, is he wants to restore our confidence in God's justice so that we will persevere in faith. He does this by reminding us of three examples of God's wrath and two examples of God's deliverance. And you can see that if you have your Bible open, or I'll, I'll try and illustrate it here presently. You can see that as we read from verse 4 down to verse 9, which essentially forms the conclusion to what is a really long Greek sentence. So let's abbreviate these uh, conditions so that we can see more easily Peter's conclusion. So in verse 4, if God did not spare angels, verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, and verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and verse 7 and 8, if he rescued righteous lots, if, 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 then, verse 9, then, one, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And two, the Lord knows how to hold the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter is pastorally addressing a congregation that was struggling to believe that God would judge these false teachers. They're struggling to believe that God would judge the false teachers and that even if he did, would he rescue them? 
So Peter wants to stir up our confidence, and he wants to show us how to stir up our confidence in God so that we can respond rightly to challenging situations in our own life, into situations where we feel as though the justice of God is absent or where we're losing sight of God's final judgment or his deliverance, especially when God seems and when it seems as though his justice is far off. So the main idea today, the main idea is at the right time, God will rescue the godly and punish the unrighteous. At the right time, God will rescue the godly and punish the unrighteous. Our structure today is we're going to answer four questions. So we've got four points answering four questions. The first question is more of a context question. It's what does it mean to be righteous? And then we'll ask, how can we know that God will punish the unrighteous? Then we'll ask, how can we know that God will rescue the godly? And then we'll try and apply it by saying, how should this affect our life? So who are the righteous? How can we know that God is going to punish the unrighteous? How do we know that God is going to deliver the righteous? And how should that change how we live? So let's look at our first question. What does it mean to be righteous? To be righteous means to be declared right by God. To be righteous means to be declared right by God. In order to make sense of this passage, we have to know what Peter means when he uses the word righteous. Who are the righteous that God will rescue? And what makes them righteous? Why is God rescuing them? So let's look with me to see how important this theme is in this passage. So you can either follow me in, in the Bible or I'll, I'll have it up here. Look with me at verse 5. It says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. In verse 7, it will say, If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, literally the ungodly. Verse 8, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. And then look in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So it's essential that we know what Peter means by the word righteous, because God is going to deliver the righteous and he's going to hold the unrighteous under punishment. In this passage, it seems as though Peter uses the word righteous and godly more or less interchangeably. They're like synonyms. They're pointing to the same thing. And he does the same thing with unrighteous and ungodly. They're synonyms. The reason that he can do this is because to be righteous has at least two senses or two meanings in Scripture. In the New Testament especially, the word righteous refers to an identity in Christ that can be given but never achieved. I'm going to say that again. To be righteous in the New Testament refers to an identity that can be given but it cannot be achieved. 
Now, there's two basic ways that the word righteous is used. The first way, and by far the most common, is to describe a person whom God declares to be righteous on the basis of their union to Christ by faith. So the first is to describe a person that God declares to be righteous. God says, this person is righteous on the basis of their union to Christ through faith because they believe in Jesus. The second way that the word righteous is used is to describe, um, is to describe the character of that person's life that comes as a result of being united to Christ by faith. So the first way righteous is used is to describe who you are. The second way it's used is to describe how you live. So again, righteous is an identity that God gives you on the basis of your faith in Christ alone. It is who God says you are in Christ and it is who you are becoming in Christ. It is who God says you are in Christ, and it is who you are becoming in Christ. And the thing that we have to notice is that this declaration is not based on your behavior. Even though over time, it will be revealed by your behavior. God does not call people righteous based on their behavior. But those whom God calls righteous based on their faith will begin to reveal that righteousness by the way they live. So the Bible is clear. No one can be, no one can become righteous apart from Christ. Because we are all sinners. We are all incapable of producing or attaining a right status before God by our own effort. Instead, God graciously declares us to be righteous based solely on our repentance and faith in his gospel. And that's the good news. The good news is that we don't have to work our way into right standing with God. God makes us right with him through faith. And that gospel is that Jesus lived a perfect and a holy life. That Jesus can clothe me in a righteousness that I could never achieve. That Jesus, by dying on the cross, paid the penalty for the sins that I justly deserved. And that Jesus, by rising from the dead, can and will give me new spiritual life. It is that faith in the person, the word, and the work of Jesus that unites us really and spiritually to Jesus. And so it is because we are in Christ by faith that God declares us righteous. And it is by continuing to cling to Christ in faith, by loving him, by treasuring him as our greatest joy, that we become more like him. So that at the same time, we both are and are becoming righteous. We are righteous because God declares us to be righteous, and we are becoming righteous because of God's work in us. So all of that 
Peter compresses into one sentence in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Christ, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God. So, who are the righteous? Those who are united to Christ by faith. Who are the righteous? Those God declares to be righteous. And who are the unrighteous? Those who faithlessly resist God's grace. Those who continue to pursue their own glory. Those, to put it bluntly, God has not declared to be righteous. So in its simplest form, the righteous are those God declares to be righteous based on their faith. And the unrighteous are those who do not believe in Christ and as a consequence are not declared to be righteous by God. You need that so that we can make sense of the rest of this passage. So question two. How can we know that God will punish the unrighteous? How can we know that God will punish the unrighteous? We can know, says Peter, by remembering how God punished the unrighteous in the past. So let's look briefly at these three examples that Peter uses in order to make his point. You'll remember that these false teachers were suggesting that Jesus is not coming back and there will be no final judgment, so you don't have to worry. Peter says, no, there is going to be a judgment. The first example he gives is angels. Look in verse 4. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and all these are going to be incomplete sentences, unfortunately, because they're all conditions. So if if this is what God did. Now, scholars disagree about what Peter is specifically referring to here. There are several views. There are two big ones. One is that Peter is talking about Satan's rebellion against God before creation's uh, history, as it were, before our history, the primordial rebellion of Satan that some scholars think is being talked about or referred to in Isaiah 14 or in Ezekiel 28. So that's, that's one view. The other view, which is the view that I hold, is that he is referring to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, just prior to the flood, where we read that certain sons of God, which elsewhere refers to angels, and so we take it the view that this was referring to angels, that they rebelled, specifically by sinning sexually with humans. Now, both views have their weaknesses, and I'm happy to talk to you about why I hold the one that I do. But either view, the point is still essentially the same. The point is that God condemns and punishes even angels who sin against him. How much more these false teachers Peter's point is, if angels don't escape when they sin against God, if God judges angels, he's going to judge you. So now the question is, how did God deal with these beings? Well, the ESV renders it this way. The ESV says he cast them into hell. 
and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, some of you, if you have your ESV, it should have a little asterisk there and tell you that the word that they're translating hell is actually Tartarus. Tartarus is the Greek word for the underworld. And I think that by rendering it hell, that is a misleading translation because it would imply that these creatures have already experienced God's final judgment, that he has condemned them and cast them out of his presence forever, permanently. It implies that they're under that ban. But what I think Peter means to do is instead, I think Peter chose a word that reflected a pagan idea that all of his readers would have been familiar with. And he used that word to more easily communicate his meaning, which is that while God has effectively already passed sentence on them, he has not yet fully carried it out. So the only illustration I can come up with is how in our justice system, sometimes there are two different hearings, one for the verdict and then one for the sentencing. So the judge will pass he, verdict. He will determine, yes, you are in fact guilty of the crime. And then he will schedule a hearing for when he will determine the, and pass down the sentence. And what Peter is saying is they are in the in-between time. And usually in that in-between time, you have not yet been sent to the prison or the jail or your, wherever you're going to finally receive your sentence. You're held in a temporary kind of location. Well, this is perhaps what Peter's describing. Their freedom has been severely restricted. They are under God's watchful eye. God has determined what he's going to do with them, but he hasn't finally and fully carried it out. We know, for instance, then, that while Satan prowls about the earth, yet he and all his servants are on a leash, as it were. They all have ankle collars. They are not free to do as they please. They are being kept, or in this case, held under punishment until the final judgment. So that's the first case. What's the second case? Look in verse 5. It says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So here Peter is recalling what happened, in my view, immediately after and partly as a result of what we just thought about in Genesis 6. So in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, it talks about these sons of God that rebelled against heaven by having a sexual sin uh, with, with humanity. In Genesis 6, 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that explains why in verse 3, a little bit before, God rendered a verdict. Because of the increasing depravity of humanity, he said he would deluge the earth in exactly 120 years' time, which, as we find out, is the time that it takes Noah to build the ark. He gives them exactly enough time for Noah to build the ark, and then he's going to end humanity. Now, if in the first case, God wanted us to remember that God's judgment extends to the spiritual realm, angels cannot escape God's judgment then in the second case, he wants us to remember that God's judgment is global. It covers the earth. And the clear implication, implication is that no one, no matter how powerful they are, nor how seemingly insignificant they might be, can escape God's judgment. God sees everything. 
Now, we might complain now and again in one or another countries as we look as how justice gets miscarried. You know, this person, they, they are, they're very wealthy, and so it seems that they escaped justice. They're very powerful. They have powerful friends, and so the, the verdict doesn't come down on them. Peter is saying, not so with God. There is no angel so powerful nor so great that he can escape God's judgment. And sometimes we might see how people who are insignificant or it doesn't even rise to the level of the court. The court just dismisses the case when there really was some sort of injustice. And Peter says, not so with God. God's judgment sees everything. He can cover the entirety of the world. So no one can escape God's judgment. So let's look at the third case. The third case, he says in verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, this is perhaps the most commonly cited example of conspicuous sin and God's sudden and terrifying wrath. In Genesis 13, 13, we read, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We know from elsewhere in Scripture, in that same book especially, that the fact was that Sodom's sin was primarily sexual sin. But Peter's interest here, although that serves his illustration, because the wicked teachers here, the false teachers, were encouraging sexual sin. So that serves his interest, but his, his focus is not so much on the nature of Sodom's sin, but on how God's complete destruction serves as an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. The fiery ruin that engulfed these cities of the valley is a vibrant and a horrifying picture of the total ruin that God will bring on those who, like these false teachers, presume on his patience and his kindness by persisting in faithless and sinful rebellion. So the picture is that one day in Sodom, they were going along on their merry way. Life was good. It was normal. Until it wasn't. And there was no gradual progression from the normal to the judgment. It was sudden. It was swift. And it was total. The cities were reduced to ash. Josephus even says that there are places that they believe, you know, this is where Sodom and Gomorrah were because they were just completely destroyed. So in summary, by recalling these three specific punishments, Peter is reminding us that God's judgment is powerful and impartial. It subdues angels. It's global and it's inescapable, just like the flood covered the whole earth. And it is ultimately total. Just as Sodom was reduced to ash, so will his wrath be total. But praise God, this is not the only thing that Peter wanted us to know. So the third question is, how can we know that God will rescue the godly? And the answer is by remembering how God rescued the godly in the past. So how can we know he will judge the wicked? by looking at how he did it in the past. How can we know he'll rescue the righteous? By looking at it in the past. So while reminding us of God's judgment, Peter's primary interest, because he's addressing the church, is to restore our confidence in God's deliverance. 
So he reminds us that not everyone perished in the flood. And praise God, not everyone perished in Sodom's destruction. In verse 5, you can see that God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, along with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And in verse 7, you can see God rescued righteous Lot from the ruin of Sodom. Now, Peter's point is that God's wrath, while it is certain, while it is global, while it is ultimately total, is not indiscriminate. Instead, we can rest knowing that God rescues the righteous. And this is why it is so important for us to know what the word righteous means in the New Testament. We ordinarily think about righteousness in moral terms. We normally think that to be righteous means to do good things, not bad things. The person who is righteous is the one who does more good things than the one who does bad things. That is not the way righteousness is used in the New Testament. And this becomes immediately clear because Peter calls Lot righteous. And Noah seems reasonable enough, right? After all, Genesis 6-9 says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. But if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, identifying Lot as righteous seems a bit of a stretch. After all, Lot chose to live in Sodom, knowing they were great sinners against the Lord. Remember, Lot was reluctant to leave when the angels commanded him to go. Remember, he got drunk and afterwards had relations with his daughters as a result. So, now, we have to be cautious here. This is not to say that the word righteous has no moral meaning at all, as if there is no outward or evident distinction between believers and non-believers. Clearly, Noah stood out. He, he walked with God. And Lot, for all of his faults, we should note, he did as well. You will remember that he refused to participate in the behavior of his neighbors, even though he chose to live in the city. You will remember that he rebuked the crowd that demanded that he surrender his visitors over for their sexual amusement. So what do I think, what is Peter doing here? I think Peter is taking two examples. And by using Lot as an example, Peter wants us to see and to remember that what truly makes someone righteous is not primarily their behavior. It's their faith. And Noah's faith is relatively easy to see, right? That's perhaps why Peter calls him a herald of righteousness. Literally, he says he's a preacher of righteousness. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, it doesn't seem as though Noah is preaching, but, but Peter says by the way he lived at least, and if not also by his words, he proclaimed the gospel of God. For 120 years, Noah was a living example of conspicuous faith as he worked faithfully waiting for God's coming judgment. It would have been very easy to see who Noah was. He's the dude that's building the massive boat for that thing that we all don't believe is happening. 
And every time you ask him, why are you doing this? He's going to say, because the Lord told me. He's going to judge the earth. Now, but Lot's faith is not so easy to see. And so Peter, I believe by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, gives us a glimpse into his soul. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, if he rescued, that being God, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Friends, I think this means that even though Lot was a foolish and a deeply compromised man, a man who wavered, a man who struggled with doubts, a man who is beset by sins, I think that still at his core, Lot genuinely believed in God. And he knew that giving in to sin unrepentantly would ultimately invite God's wrath. Friends, we should be cautious about dismissing Lot's seemingly feeble attempts at obedience. We should remember that, admittedly, it was in part because of his own folly. Lot picked to go and live in Sodom and Gomorrah. But he was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. He was surrounded by a rapaciously perverse culture. He was utterly alone. He had no friends in the faith to strengthen him, to encourage him. He did not have a local assembly. He did not receive preaching. He did not have those wonderful graces that God has supplied to us to endure the difficulties of our culture. In short, Peter is not saying that Lot's faith excuses his sins or that God saved Lot because Lot, on balance, was still better behaved than the men of Sodom. Instead, I think Peter, by using both a clear example, Noah, and a weak example of moral and behavioral righteousness, Peter's reminding us that God's deliverance does not depend on our relative moral performance. God's deliverance does not depend on our relative moral performance. God does not save those who are more righteous than others. Remember how the Pharisee sees himself in Luke 18, 11, right? I thank you, God, that I am not like that sinner, I, though I'm certainly a sinner, I'm not perfect, but I do better than he does. Who's, who does Jesus say goes home justified? That guy. The guy who sat at the back and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. God does not save the more righteous than others. God saves those he declares to be righteous. God saves those who cling by faith to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So a few brief words of pastoral caution and some encouragement. First, Peter does not see, does not want us to see Lot as an example to be followed. The point of offering Lot is not like, be like righteous Lot. <laughs> Many of us, by God's kind providence, enjoy vastly better opportunity for growth and holiness. 
and we should diligently pursue it. We all start at different places when God calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And for some of us, sanctification is a really hard and really big process. And for some of us, we've had a lot of help already. We should press in to the holiness that God affords us wherever we are. The second thing, though, is that at the same time, Lot is a wonderful reminder, especially to those of us who might be struggling really hard with sin. There is a difference between someone who is struggling hard with sin and someone who's made it their friend. And that appears to be the difference between Lot and the people of Sodom. The people of Sodom said, no, this is fine. This is good. What we're doing is good. This is not sin. There is no judgment. We're fine. And Lot, for all of his failings, knew deep down in his heart, every sin deserves the judgment of God. He had not made friends with it. He was struggling with it. But he was a weak man. And friends, some of us today might be really struggling with sin. Don't use Lot as an excuse to stop fighting sin. But use Lot as a reminder that our identity does not depend on our ability, but on God's faithfulness and on God's gracious help. So persevere. I know it's hard. Continue to pray. Pursue godly friends. Make the wise decisions that you can to remove yourself from situations that do give sin an opportunity in your life. But in the end, rest in Christ. Just praise God. Jesus delights to rescue weak and wounded sinners. And this brings us to Peter's conclusion in verse 9. He says, if all this is true, then we can rest and rejoice because the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And having understood Peter's examples, now his conclusion requires less explanation, I hope. The first element is that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That means, or I should say that does not mean that God keeps believers from experiencing discomfort or that God keeps believers from struggling with sin. So that God knows how to deliver the righteous does not mean that we get a pain-free, sin-free, temptation-free existence. It means that God will not allow us to suffer or to be tempted in such a way that we cannot faithfully endure it or escape it by his help. Even if that means death. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the Apostle Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And notice that we normally think of escape as like, that means I get out of it, right? He says the way of escape, meaning how you endure it. He will provide you what you need in order to endure the difficulty that he allows in your life. So instead, Peter is urging us to see in these past examples of deliverance a picture of how God will finally deliver us from evil on the day of his return. The second aspect, the second conclusion is that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And this, my friends, means primarily that God is not unaware of evil. And God will not ultimately let evil go unpunished. I 
can only imagine that in a room this large, there must be some among us who have experienced serious, deep, painful wounds from evil, and that at least some of us did not see those wounds or evils made right in this life. God sees. God knows. God will make it right. God will do what is right. I think of our countless brothers and sisters across the world who suffer physical, political persecution constantly, and they must read 2 Thessalonians 1 with a different sense of weight. The apostle says, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, invicting, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's what a glorious day. What a glorious day. And it also means, friends, that when God leaves you to your sin, that is, on the one hand, a kind of merciful patience. Our sins deserve death. The moment we sin, we deserve to die and to be cut off from God eternally in hell. When God does not judge us in that moment, he is offering you merciful patience. He is waiting with you. He is inviting you to repent. He is waiting for you to come. But it is also at the same time a foretaste of wrath because, friends, sin is by its very nature destructive. It is destructive on relationships. It is destructive on the way we think. It is destructive on the way we feel. It is destructive on our finances. It is destructive on our life. Some will make it through this breath of a life seemingly as though this destruction is not at work, but it is. So even when we are not sensible of God's wrath, when he leaves you to your sin, it's an example of it, inasmuch as it's an example of his patience. Do not mistake God's patience with sin and sinners for tolerance of that sin. Because at its core, Peter now wants us to take these two wonderful truths about God. We know that God is going to judge the wicked. We know that he's going to judge sin. And we know that he's going to rescue the righteous. And he says, take these two things and live in light of what we know to be true about God. Which brings us to the fourth question. How should this affect how we live? We should live with compassion. We should live with courage. We should live with peace. We should live with purity. So there's just four ways that knowing and trusting that God will punish the unrighteous and rescue the godly should influence our life. Hopefully these are good co topics for lunch conversation. First, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. See, knowing that God sees, knowing that God will at the right time justly and perfectly punish all evil, even the most heinous of crimes, even the most heinous of injuries, frees us from being overcome by anger. 
It frees us from giving in to vengeance. This is how you can escape drowning in bitterness. This is what makes it possible for a Christian to respond with grace to those who are their enemies. This is why Paul writes in Romans 12, 19 and 21, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. How? But leave it to the wrath of God. Remember, God knows how to hold the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Know that. Know that. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the clearest ways you can live out your confession, your faith in Christ's return and final judgment, is to love your enemy. Some of us might say, how can I begin? You don't, you don't know the kind of enemies I have, Pastor Gordon. Start by praying for them. It is incredibly, I would say almost impossible not to grow in love for someone that you pray for. Start by praying for them. Second, don't be overcome by anxiety. Instead, trust, Christ, trust Christ's deliverance. Knowing that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials means we don't have to fear a cancer diagnosis. It means God will be with us. It means God will sustain us the whole way through, even if we die. We don't have to be afraid of what will happen if the wrong candidate gets in office. We don't have to be afraid about what's going to happen if things don't go the way that we plan, either this day, this week, this month, this year, or in our life. We don't have to fear depression. It doesn't mean we don't have depression. It means we don't have to fear depression. We don't have to fear loneliness. We don't even have to fear death because God knows how to rescue the godly from every trial. That's why Paul can say with such confidence in 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. How? And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So third, don't be overcome by guilt. Rest in God's grace. See, knowing that God rescues the righteous and that the righteous are those that God has declared to be righteous on the basis of their faith in Jesus, has the power to free you and I to admit how bad we really are. You can face up to it. And at the same time, it frees you from being crushed by guilt. For some of us, especially those of us with a sensitive conscience, we need to remember the good news that in Jesus Christ, God has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He keeps no record of wrongs. And for us, we need to remember that if God saved Lot, he will certainly save every soul who trusts in him. Friends, you should look at Lot and go, but for the grace of God, there go I. And God saved Lot. He can save me. Don't be overcome by guilt. Rest and rejoice. God knows how to rescue the godly. And fourth, don't underestimate the danger of sin. Instead, pursue godliness. So these, see how these two tensions are holding together the truth of what Peter's teaching us. The main application of Peter's epistle 
is that we should live holy lives in light of the certain knowledge that Jesus is coming back. And for some of us, we need to hear and we need to heed the warning that while God is patient, we must not presume upon his patience. Our salvation may depend on faith alone, but not on faith that remains alone. Real and genuine faith is marked by a progressive, however slow, growth in godliness. So don't use the promise of rescue to justify ignoring the real danger of sin in your life. Instead, use the promise of God's justice to help us press into purity. So let's conclude. Friends, we do not need to fear that evil will go unanswered. Whether it's done in the United States, or in Gaza, or in Ukraine, or in Bhutan, Sudan, we don't need to fear that justice will not be done. Because God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The same God who imprisons angels, the God who deluged the world in water, the God who destroyed Sodom with fire in a single day, he will come to judge the earth. But on that great and terrible day when Christ comes to judge the earth, we don't need to fear that he will consume us alongside the lost because God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and he knows how to bring them into his eternal kingdom. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promise that you will send your son to bring justice and to bring an end to all evil. Thank you that on that very day, you will rescue all those who are united to Christ, whom you declared righteous. Help us to know and to treasure these promises, to forsake our anger and our anxiety, and to live with humility, kindness, and confidence and joy. So keep us for yourself and bring us into your eternal kingdom. For Jesus' sake, amen.